You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Brandon Miller, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Everyone is always talking about moving to Canada. For some, it's dissatisfaction with the political situation in their country. For others, it's the promise of free health care and all sorts of other benefits that we just don't get here in the States. I have to admit, faced with the hopes of early retirement and exorbitant health care costs, even my wife and I have had this conversation. Why not move to Canada? What most of us spend sparingly little time on is considering the actual process one must undergo to become a permanent resident or citizen. We concentrate so much on deciding whether we want Canada. What if Canada doesn't want us? Brandon Miller is a regulated Canadian immigration consultant and is the founder of Mabel Immigration Services. Brandon is passionate about everything immigration and enjoys not only helping people to come to Canada, but seeing that they get integrated into the country. His book, Second Passport, Your Guide to Have a Secure Alternative Home for You and Your Family, Just in Case, was published in February Brandon, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's take a closer look at the byline of your book, Your Guide to Have a Secure Alternative Home for You and Your Family Just in Case. Just in case what? <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's like three dots after it, dot, dot, dot. So it's funny because this was written prior to turmoil in the world of, that we've all been, been faced with over the last couple of years or, or so. But, you know, for me, one of the things that I the reason that I put that out there was, is in the Western world, we don't really think about having a plan B in terms of a nationality. But I've been dealing with people, I've, I've lived overseas for about 15 years, and I've been dealing with people around the world. And there's many cultures that just look at having a, a second passport or a second citizenship as just, you know, kind of what you do. You know, I don't, I don't want to start pointing at different countries, but there's countries where you might have an unstable government. They might want to, you know, have money shipped overseas and as a just-in-case fund. One of the things that's interesting to me is, is that it's only taken the last couple of years where a lot more people are saying, hmm, maybe there's some other benefits here and maybe we should be looking at this. And, and Canada's one of those logical choices. So tell us, why is Canada one of those logical choices? Why the heck move to Canada? You know, it really depends on a number of different factors, depending on the individual. However, one kind of catch-all phrase that I like to use is just options for the future. What I mean by that is, is that 
people might be looking at it from a financial standpoint. They might say, hey, listen, I, I don't know what my job prospects will be for the future or things like that. There might be worker mobility. There might be taxation issues. You know, Having a Canadian and American passport allow you to leverage that in different ways through different treaties and whatnot. There was a lady that I remember from many years back, probably three or four years ago, she was from China and she was choosing between Australia and Canada. And this was actually, it was longer than that. It was probably six or seven years ago. She said to me, I said, why did you choose Canada? And she says, you know what? I think in probably 50, 75 years, Canada is going to have more water. I was like, that's really interesting. But now we're starting to see some of those things. Like there's droughts and different things and global warming and whatnot. You know, I always make the joke that like, we'll be planting palm trees in Toronto, but things are getting a little bit milder. So I don't know. I, I really don't know where the future is going to go. And no, I don't mean to, I, I don't think it's something like it's fear mongering or thing like things like that. I think having different options, you know, not only for yourself, but kids, grandkids and, and different things like that is, is something that, that makes a lot of sense. We're talking about why Canada and you've spent some time living outside of Canada. Is it right that you were in Asia for quite a bit of time? I lived in Asia and I lived in the Middle East for a little bit. And what was interesting to me was, you know, I, I spent some time out, but it allowed me to kind of appreciate being here, you know, depending if they're in Canada or the US or whatever, they're like, oh, well, this is the best country in the world, but they don't really have any context to that. You know, I actually do. And I'm like, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it okay here. So that's what I find interesting. And how did you become interested in helping people with immigration? Did it have something to do with your time spent in Asia? I originally went to school and, and graduated and I was on my, on my way to law school. And so I studied law for my undergrad and I was I had a few different interesting job prospects that were available to me and, and grad school. And, and I, you know, just the way it worked out, I ended up teaching English in Korea and I was going to go for a year, come back, finish off law school and, and go along my way. I went for a year and I ended up staying there for four and a half. And I'll tell you, it was it was interesting to me that when I got out into the world, it was interesting to learn and see. And, and I learned more, I think, in that year abroad. Well, I should be careful with that. I, I, I learned a lot of real world things that were very interesting to me and, and something that I'm forever grateful for. So what had happened was I went off, I started a business, I, I was in the educational sphere, and I got into my 30s. And I'm kind of looking back and I'm like, everything's going pretty well for me. I've got a, you know, I got a pretty great life going and, and everything. And I just was not really happy with where I was at. And I found immigration just by almost like a fluke. I was, I was doing some work for somebody and they, they were doing this and I started looking into it and I was like, Hey man, this is great. Like it allows me to parlay some of my international experience and understanding of the world and different cultures and whatnot. And I, I was able to get back to law, but the, the most important thing for me is, is that I actually spent a lot of time outside and and people were always so welcoming to me and, and welcomed me into their country and their homes and different things like that. Now I get to do the same thing where I'm helping people kind of find a new home here in Canada, which is just absolutely fantastic for me. Now, you mentioned your interest in the law. In your introduction, I called you a regulated Canadian immigration consultant. Right. Is it correct to say you're not a lawyer, but there are lawyers who do the same thing you do? Yeah. So anybody who does immigration legal work for, for consideration, i.e., you know, money or, or some sort of uh, material benefit, they are required to be either a Canadian immigration consultant or a member of provincial bar. 
so or a lawyer. So the interesting thing is this is consultants, you know, and a lot of the a lot of the people that make up my profession are ex-visa officers and and different people along those lines and, and have some exposure to the to the environment. We have to go through, do school, do courses, and we're actually covered by federal statute now, which is the same as, you know, doctors, lawyers, any any sort of profession. Nobody can just go out and start practicing immigration law. They actually have to go through and and the educational requirements are quite, quite intense. Currently, the certification is being transitioned over to Queen's University Law School, which is they're responsible for the English program in Canada, and they're the only people that are doing it. So a uh, pretty respectable law school that's teaching the uh, the course for that. So yeah, that's th- those are the only two people that can do that. The other thing that I would like to say as well on that is that most people, you can either you know be a generalist. The only thing that a lawyer can do that I can't do is go to federal court, which basically means represent somebody in a judicial review or a litigation matter, which is fine because quite frankly, anybody who understands anything about any type of profession understands that you know, you kind of stick in your lane and you can't do it all. You can't do it all very well. So, you know, specialize in different areas. And I think that's that's one of the key things and what people need to be aware of. So we're going to talk about the specifics of the process because that's what you're actually an expert in is the process mm-hmm. of becoming a permanent resident. But before we do, how big of an issue is this? How many people are applying for permanent residency in Canada in, Canada in any given year? That's a really good question. And that's a timely question because currently right now, what we're seeing in Canada is numbers that we haven't seen in in generations. So we have an aggressive immigration plan. And the reason that we have an aggressive immigration plan is, is that we need human capital. We need people. Most of the Western world is actually facing facing and will be facing a human capital shortage. And if you look at it here, like the trends in Canada are this, is back in the 1970s, we had six workers to every one retiree. Currently, we have three workers to every one retiree, and by 2035, we're going to have two. We have a lot of really great benefits here with retirement plans, free healthcare everybody knows about, and different things like that. Those things need to be supported with workers. So we've we've made the decision early on, and when I say early on, because you know most of the world is going to experience this in about 20, 2040, 2050, somewhere in there, and the U.S. is not is not immune to this either where there's going to be a shortage of people and, you know, they're aggressively bringing in people now because they want to be able to have younger cohorts. Right. And that's why the system, which is, is skewed to that is they want people to be coming in, working, paying taxes, all of those great things. So yeah, that's the reason that we're doing it, but getting back to the numbers this year, we brought in over 400,000 people, which might not sound like a lot, but when you're looking at the country and the country's, you know, just under 40 million people, that is that is quite a quite a big number, but we're bringing in about 1.2 million people over the next three years, so pretty substantial in that respect. So if somebody's looking at Canada, now's a pretty good time in that respect because there's record numbers of people that are slotted to come in. So I asked in the introduction whether Canada wants us, but it sounds like this is a good time to move to Canada. What makes you a good candidate? Like. If you're looking at someone and they're saying, hey, I need your help, what sort of things are you looking to tip you off that say, hey, Canada really is going to want this person? Canada has a point system. And I know sometimes in the news, depending on what you're looking at, people don't like the point systems. But I actually really enjoy the point system. 
the point system is based on a number of different factors. So the first one that I alluded to was age. If you're between the ages of 20 to 29, you're, you get maximum points, right? And then as you age up to the age of 45, it goes down to zero. But as you progressively get a little bit older, you're losing points on age. The next thing that we look at is education. So if you have an undergraduate degree, or if you have a master's degree or, or something along those lines, or even, or even uh, college, you know, you, you still get quality, you get credit for that as well. So age, education, language skills, you'd have to do an English or French test. Obviously, we're bilingual, so we accept both languages. But if you do speak French, you have a bit more of an edge. And if you are bilingual, you do get some extra points on that. And then on top of that, we're also looking at work experience. So work experience is determined as skilled work experience. And what that means is, is somebody who's working in you know, a skilled job. It could be administrative work. It could be a carpenter, a plumber. It could be a doctor. It could be a CEO of a company. So anything in anything in that respect where you, you know, you have to go to college or 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 something along those lines. So uh, college or university or something like that. So putting all of that together, what happens is is that all of that those points and there's other points too. For instance, if you have a job offer, if you went to school in Canada, which is which is a really good strategy these days. If you have a sibling that's in Canada, you know, these all will add to it. So basically what happens is, is that these will go into a system, which we call express entry. You'll fill out an application and then they do draws and the draws are points-based. It's not, it's not a lottery where, you know, in some places of the world, people will have just randomly choosing people. This is actually a lottery that you can rig based on your education and work experience and all of that stuff. Now, just to, just to preface that, what I'm referring to is, is the, the economic pathways, and those are predominantly some of the other pathways that are some of the more popular ones. There's, a, there's over 100 different pathways and streams to be able to come here. So effectively, what we do is, is that we'll try to find you know, the easiest, most direct, and, and obviously cost-effective pathway. But that's, that's see, what I just laid there through the express entry system is basically the, the most most popular pathway for somebody to come to come through Canada. And we mentioned some of the things that would make you attractive uh, to become a permanent resident in Canada, but there are also some things that work against you, some things that make you inadmissible. What type of things kind of count against you? There's a few different areas of inadmissibility. One is one is criminal inadmissibility. And this could be, you know, when you, when you think of anything criminal, like a misdemeanor or, or felony offense, we have a different system up here. We have something we call them summary indictable, and there's hybrid offenses as well, which is unique to a unique system. And what that means is, is that it can go either way. It can either be a summary, which is a misdemeanor, or, or a felony, which is an indictable. But if it's a hybrid, normally the immigration system errs on the side of like, oh, we'll make it indictable, which is the more serious one. So one thing that I do flag for people because it does come up is, you know, having just a DUI, like driving under the influence actually makes you inadmissible to Canada. And with the computer systems that Canada and the U.S. share, there's many, many of American tourists or business person that would come up and be having an uncomfortable situation at the airport without even knowing it. So that's that could be a possible inadmissibility. Now, these things can be dealt with. You know, we deal with these quite regularly. The other inadmissibility could be uh, a medical inadmissibility. And because we have a public system of free healthcare, what we look at is any situations that would put uh, what we call as excessive demand on the system. So there's a there's a dollar figures that are attached to that. And then what we do is there's they go through and they look at 
what the medical condition might be, and then they would make a determination based on if that would put excessive demand on the system. There's also, uh, lastly, and it's not really an admissibility per se, but it's a, we, it could be, you could term it as that as a financial inadmissibility. So some programs you'd have to come through and technically have enough money to be able to have settlement funds to be able to work with your transition. Well, we don't really call it that. I kind of term it that. You kind of have to have a very modest amount of money. And I'm talking like, you know, maybe nine or $10,000 of your money, US, based on the current things for a single applicant to be able to come here. So that, and, you know, you don't have to pay that to the government. You just have to show that you have it in your bank or the availability of it. So this sounds like it's a fairly complex process. Whenever I have people on you like the show, people say, well, why, why wouldn't I just do it myself? Tell me, is this a do-it-yourself kind of process? And do people generally succeed? <sighs> it can be a do-it-yourself process. My understanding is, is that you come from the medical field. And to put it in those terms, you know, I, I could probably get on the internet and figure out how to stitch myself up. But I, I choose to go to a hospital and have somebody do that. You can do the same thing with immigration. And and here's the thing. A lot of people, yes, the information is all on the internet, but where where people I think falter is that it's the context of the the situation. And, And you're dealing with very unique, it's a personalized process in that you know, what you might read on one Facebook forum or or some sort of forum might be true for one person, but might actually create a chain of events that might create problems for you. So I I see one of three clients that generally come through my practice. The first one is, is people that will say, Hey, listen, I'm going to educate myself and I'm going to understand the stuff and make a plan. And then I'll make my decision from there. Those are the people that I, I really like working with because they're actually taking it. They're looking at the plan and they, then the next question is, is like, here's my plan. Can I execute on my plan? Right. And that's where we have to be honest with ourselves in that respect. The second type of client is somebody who's gone and kind of done it themselves. And then they submit something and then they get something back from the government. And they're like, whoa, what was that all about? What happened there? I kind of that, I, I term that as like, they get a little slap on the cheek from the department. They're like, wow, I thought this was easy. Why are you sending me this letter back? Generally people, they'll say, mm, maybe this is, maybe I should get some advice on that. So then they'll generally reach out. And then there's the third group, which is basically like, you know, we'll come into my office back when we were having different in-person things, there's maybe some tears shed and different things. And it's like, I can't fix you. You've done too much damage here. So yes, the information is out there, but being able to put it together and understand it, I think that's actually something that everybody needs to be aware of. And really what I like to do with people is, is give them the plan and then say, okay, here's exactly what you need to do, or here, this is viable, or hey, this isn't actually viable, and maybe you'd want to rethink even filing an application. And then they can make a decision based on that, like at least understand what their pathways are and what's involved. And then they can say, how do I want to do this now? And I've, I'm actually pretty innovative in my, in my industry for providing people options on how they can do that. You just said that sometimes people come in and there's tears shed and you have to say, look, there's too much damage that's been done. Tell us a story about a situation and someone has kind of self-inflicted enough damage that it's hard to really get them out of it. There's one, there's one situation that I always think of, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. There was a woman that was here. She was here for 
four or five years. And it was, it was actually between Christmas and New Year's. And, you know, a lot of times I find during the holidays, people get time off. And, and so, you know, my generally get busier. So we'll work between that time and we'll do some appointments. And she came in and, and she was sitting in my office and I was looking at her file and I was like, oh boy, like this is not this, you know, and I'm, this is, in, this is my inside voice. Right. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, oh man, this is just, this is not good. And I didn't see a fix. And I said to her, I said, listen, there's a problem here. And I don't know if I can fix this, but why don't you and I get on the phone and let's call the immigration department together and, and, you know, see what we can do. So we did. And the lady on the other end uh, of the phone, she understood by the questions I was asking, and she was looking at the file. She knew exactly what was going on. And she got kind of really quiet because she knew that there was no way out. She had to, she had to go home. So I broke the news to her and I'll tell you, it was so shattering to her that I'm on the second floor of my office, right? And on the second floor of my office, I actually walked her down the stairs because I was afraid that she was actually going to fall down the stairs because she was shaking so bad to the reality of that, you know, she had been here, you know, I think it was four years or so. And, and that's it. It came to a crushing end and, and there was no, there was no point. There was nothing she could do. Now, she was from a country where living in Canada was quite a stark difference from the reality of returning home. And at that point, some people will make the decision either to return or then stay and because they don't have anything really to return to and just stay and continue to work and try to do that, which I try to counsel them not to because then they just start their own little prison for themselves because they can't take advantage of all the benefits and all the different things and all the great things that we have here. And then they're just kind of in the shadows and open to different things there. So yeah, I don't mean to be negative on that, but I, I'll tell you, I've never forgotten that. And just looking at her and, and the look on her face, it will something I'll never forget. It's really, it was really, it was really earth shattering, like for, for her and, and something I'll never forget. That's for sure. What did she do so wrong? She filed an application and the application was filed incorrectly. And this is this is what a lot of people don't understand is, is that if you file it and you make a mistake, and you might not even make a mistake, right? For instance, there's a lot of errors that are made by the department, but you have to know how to deal with those errors to be able to get it back in. But what can happen is, is that people will file something in error, or it'll be returned in error, and then they're missing out on timeframes, and then they can't actually get their status back, for instance. That's for somebody who's in, in Canada. For somebody overseas, Simply put, if you're actually in the draw and say you age out or say that the draws, you know, you get your, you get your ticket. Like I just dealt with a guy about a week ago, he's here from South America and he's brought the whole family. Yeah. He filed his application on his own through express entry. He made a mistake and he actually, he's lucky that he actually had his application returned because there was actually errors in the application that would have actually come back if they accepted it into processing. But there, it's really tricky. Like there's a lot of things. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. If you upload your police check, it says specifically the police check has to be uploaded in color. If you take a black and white scan, then that's it. They just return your application. You haven't met the requirements. And oh, by the way, they're going to keep your processing fee too. You know, so it's like, there's so many little details that people might not even be aware of. And they don't say that anywhere. It's actually buried on the website under completeness check. So that's uh, it's it's serious stuff, man. You mentioned the application fee. Is it is it a costly process in general applying for permanent residency? 
Not really. It's about $500 Canadian, which I think is about $390 US. And then there's a, there's an RPRF fee, that's for, uh, which is a right of permanent residence fee. And that's about $490 or $500 now. And then for kids, it's about $100, $150 uh, per the kid. And then you have to do a medical, which is about a couple hundred bucks. Uh, and I'm, all, I'm quoting in Canadian dollars, which anybody who's uh, familiar with the, the rates know that you get a lot more bang for your buck with the US dollar. So what else? And then you have to do biometrics, which is fingerprints and, and retinal scans. Those are about 85 bucks. That's about it. Yeah. So it's pretty, you know, generally if for a single applicant, you're looking at about 1300 bucks Canadian, 1400 bucks. So about 1200 US. We're talking with Brandon Miller. He is a regulated Canadian immigration consultant and is the founder of Maple Immigration Services. We're going to take a short break. This is Doc G, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and more, in state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from the 46 IPOs or sale exits of their investments. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. That is O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash EAI. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Brandon Miller. His book, Second Passport, Your Guide to Have a Secure Alternative Home for You and Your Family Just in Case, was published in February Brandon, let's talk about the process itself. In the book, you break things down into pre-application, application, and post-acceptance, if if you're lucky. Let's talk about the pre-application process. What type of things should be running through your head as you're considering moving to Canada before we've contacted you, before we've even got the application? 
There's so many. It really depends if you're single, if you have a family. There, it's it's very unique to everybody. What we do is, is we have something that we we put we call an immigration blueprint, and the blueprint is basically the immigration side of it and also the settlement side of it. And if you if you see the cover of the book, right, it's planning, implementation, and settlement, right? And so I look. There's nothing. There's nothing strange about this process. I think it's I think any type of process that you go through or anything that you want to do in life, you have to have a plan and then you have to be able to execute on that plan. So I've done all of that and packed it into a system which I call the immigration success system. And then on top of that, I have something called the settlement side. And I'll tell you, this is the biggest thing that I saw. So prior when I was going to school, just when I was going to school to get my certification in this area, I actually was lucky enough to work with people that were transitioning into the country. And I'm going to tell you, it taught me some very valuable lessons that I've baked into my process. Now, a lot of my colleagues, and all due respect to a lot of people, we're focused very on, on, on the legal aspects and putting that stuff together. And that's what we're paid to do. However, immigrating to a new country as somebody who's done it, like I've done that through my whole time, I know that it's not just about getting your paperwork right. It's about what you're going to do when you get there. So I've always taken that approach for all of my clients. And I, you know, some people would say to me, they're like, I just, you know, if I just want to go to Canada and, and they have the idea that if they get here, everything's going to be great. It's like, no, it's not. You'll come here. There's lots of opportunity, but you have to understand how to unlock it. Now for an American lot easier than than other people that might be dealing with culture issues or language issues or different things like that. You know, culturally coming from, you know, the US to Canada, it's not a leap, right? You know, I always I always kind of joke the big difference between Canada and the US is you guys have all these like really great combinations of chocolate bars that we don't have up here, right? <laughs> so, we don't have that stuff, but you know, look, on a, on a serious note, people need to have a plan. They need to be able to execute. And then for immigration, you need to start thinking about where you're going to work, where you're going to live, what's your spouse going to do, what type of lifestyle that you want to lead, et cetera, et cetera. I always tell people to start at the lifestyle. And what I mean by that is this, is we have a lot of people that are increasingly working from home since the pandemic. And there's a lot of people now that have portable jobs. And they're like, hmm, I can still keep my job. I can be paid in US dollars and save 20% on living expenses up in Canada. I can actually go and live next to like world, world-class skiing in the mountains somewhere. And I'm just a, a couple hour flight away or even an hour and a half drive to the border to be able to do what I need to do. Why wouldn't I do that? Oh, and by the way, I get free healthcare. I get options for my kids in the future. I get the subsidized schooling and all of the other stuff that they have. So it's actually, you know, and a lot of times it's a quality of life decision. So I think that a lot of people have this idea that it's actually quite difficult. And I would say that it is difficult, but you have to think about not only this is an immigration process, but in parallel, you have to think about what you're going to do when you get here and what's life going to look like. Again, coming from the US, it's not really a big difference that as opposed to some other people, you take somebody out of China, for instance, that doesn't speak the language, they're struggling with culture and they're studying with language and they're studying maybe with the diet and, and different things like that. I, I just think that having that plan and putting that all together in the beginning is, is one of the best things that you know I can do for somebody. The other thing that, that we explore 
And a lot of people, it's it's kind of funny because people will come to me and they'll say, hey, I was reading about this on the internet. I want to apply for this program and you know do this. And I'm like, really? Is that what you want to do? It's like, why don't we do it this way? You know, it's it's kind of like walking into a doctor's office and saying, hey, I'm really sick. Here's this. I need this prescription. Can you give that to me? It's like, no, 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 slow down, right? You got to go through and you got to figure out what the best way and what the best pathway is. There's so many different ways to do that. And depending on depending on who I'm speaking to, and I always think about, you know, I have clients in the Middle East, for instance, right? You know, they'll be from, say, India, for instance, and then they'll go work in Dubai. They'll have a better, better living conditions. And then they'll say, hmm, I can't stay here. So the next logical jump will be somewhere in the Western world, right? And they generally look to Canada. But I remind people, you know, and, and I think, again, I seem to be on doctors a lot this, this time, but <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have doctors and, you know, they'll be in their 40s and 50s and they'll say to me, I want to go to Canada. But when you actually start getting into it, why do you want to go to Canada? Well, I want a better life for my kids. Okay. So you understand if you come here, your chances of actually practicing medicine at this juncture in Canada are probably pretty limited. But so are you willing to throw away your career and do all of that? Or do you want to look at maybe bringing your kids here, allowing them to become students, achieving your goal, and then you keeping your career and being able to support that and then spending your retirement years in Canada? Probably a better plan, right? So a lot of people, they don't, they get the blinders on and they don't look at the holistic picture. And that's, I think, one of the biggest things that one of the biggest services that I provide is actually mapping it all out so they can do that, not only from an immigration perspective, but like from a lifestyle perspective. So, and I think that's important. It sounds like it's really important to be intentional from day one about what you want out of the process before you get involved. Let's talk about the process itself, the application. How complicated are these applications? How long does it take to fill them out? How long does it take for them to be processed? Run us through that process a little bit. So it's depending on the type of application, it can be quite easy on the surface. And this is where I think the danger is, is a lot of people will look at it. And, and I, you know, I, I blame also the immigration department because they make it sound really easy. And what people need to understand is, is that it's not about what you read on the website. The website is not the law. The law is what's in the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. That's the law. And they don't, you're not reading the law. You're reading a synopsis of something that's on a website and that might have some different sections that are in there. But it's actually, that's not the way it works. Those aren't the operational manuals that the, the officer's looking at. So the other thing that I like to point out to people, and I, you'll hear me say it a lot, is that they give you these nice little handy dandy checklists, right? But here's the thing. The immigration department, they, they should say, this is actually what they should say. They should say, here's a checklist of what we want from you as the minimums for you to be able to submit your application so that we can process this in an expedient manner so that we're able to get through our excessive backlog here as quickly as possible so we don't get in trouble or have any political blowback on the immigration issue. But as per the law, and you're the one that's making the application, it's incumbent upon you to prove that you actually meet all the, all the requirements. And the reason I say that is, is because a lot of times, remember I talked about the second group of people that get slapped by the, the, the department? The, those people followed the list. They followed everything that they asked them for. But those lists are not complete. 
those lists are for them to expediently process the file. And then what happens is, is something will come up here and they'll be like, why didn't, I didn't know that they didn't ask me. It's like, yeah, I know you didn't know that because it's all buried in their internal stuff, which I study and I read and I do access to information requests to keep on top of this stuff. So a lot of people don't understand that. And so the process is actually, it's deceiving. It looks easy, but it's, it's not but it, it's easy if you know what you're doing. So one of the things that we've done is we've accounted for people to be able to go through that process themselves. However, we give them the guidance. We're like, okay, here's all the stuff, go through it all. And then here's the dung, dung, dung. And, and I call them the, oh, by the ways. It's like, oh, by the way, you should do this, right? So what we've done is, is we've packaged those all up in a systematic manner to be able to do that. And I, I like people to go through it. If they want to do it themselves, it's like, okay, you can do it yourself, but here's all the stuff that you need to do. And here's the guidance. And oh, by the way, if you get in trouble, give us a call and you get in over your head. And here's some indicators of what would trouble would look like and where it's going. So let's assume you are one of the successful ones. Happy day you get the letter from the immigration service saying that they are willing to accept you as a permanent resident. The work doesn't stop there. Talk to us a little bit about the process after you've been accepted. And what are some of the responsibilities of being a permanent resident? Because I think people don't realize that it is not citizenship. Oh, that's such a great question. So a permanent resident would be the same thing as a green card holder, right? But and again, I, I'm not I'm not a U.S. immigration attorney, but I do know a few things about it. And one of the things that I do know is is that Canada is a little bit more liberal in terms of the like entry requirements. So my mother and father-in-law are U.S. green card holders, and they have to actually make an entry into the U.S. every six months. Right? That's kind of what you have to do. Otherwise, you're going to have to get a like a travel log or or whatnot and and be able or a travel pass, I think it is. And then you you have two years to be able to stay out. You can get that twice out of your time, as is my understanding. Canada, you can you have to be in Canada physically present two out of five years to maintain your permanent resident status. But that there's no limitations on that. So for instance, you can land, you can become a permanent resident, and then you can go away for three years, you know, two and a half, let's say. And I don't have to see you. We don't have to see you here. And then you can come back, get your two years, and then that's it. Or what you can do is you can come to Canada. You can stay for three years, three years physically present in a five-year period, and then you can apply for citizenship. Once you're granted citizenship, then you can go away for 40 years and, and come back and lead a retirement and do whatever and have all of the benefits of having a Canadian passport. You can access all the different services. Your kids can do that. You can travel. You've got counselor services, worker mobility agreements, everything. And as an American, you can hold dual citizenship as well. The other thing too is everyone always asks me about taxes. And I I generally am like, yeah, I'm the last person you should ask because it's very complex. However, you know, the, the Canadian tax department, it's not as onerous as say, you know, the IRS, right? And what I mean by that is, is I have a buddy that we we lived in Korea for a while. He's from Florida. And he was so incensed because I actually was able to file non-residency status in Canada. So I lived virtually, well, I lived tax-free. And and it was so much to the point where I would come back on vacation. And if I would say I'd buy a laptop while I was in Canada, I can actually make a filing to get the 
HST, the tax back and get my tax back because I'm technically a non-resident here and, and that's it. Whereas he was filing taxes overseas while he was there because the IRS department, IRS follows you around, right? That's actually interesting. If somebody is really smart about it and they do the planning and whatnot, and they get professional advice on this because there are certain pieces of legislation that have been acted in the US that you need to plan for, you know, you could actually play both sides of the fence quite effectively. The other thing too, from a worker point, I always talk about this and and from the American context, one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, when you have economic slowdowns or, or job losses or different things, Canada is not immune to the effects of anything that happens in the US, but there's always a what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's a trickle-down effect. Like we'll feel it, but something something big will happen, like 2008 will happen in the States. But we didn't, we weren't as affected with that. And I saw a lot of people, you know, and I wasn't in the profession at this time, but I saw some people and knew some people that were going through that. And they they had the ability to transition to Canada. And they did. And they were able to kind of seamlessly ride that out. So you can actually ride both sides of the fence. And that's what I talk about when I say future options. You know, there's it, it provides people options and mobility to be able to do and leverage different things. In the book, you tell a fairly poignant story about the difference between permanent residence and citizenship. You tell a story of an Italian woman who had been living for decades in Canada yes. and ran into some problems. Maybe this is a hint that actually taking that extra step and going for citizenship is important. Tell us about that story. Yeah. So that lady, uh, she was older. She came to Canada at a very young age. And what had happened was she was spending a lot of time outside of the country because she was retired. And the permanent residency was just something that she, you know, they always just renewed it and they always stayed. But as she was increasingly spending more time outside of the country, she came back in and she was stopped at the border. And so what happens is, is that if you're not meeting your residency requirements, then, you know, basically get a report and you have to show that, you know, all these different things and and like your attachment here and all the other stuff. And it actually goes in front of the IRB. You can go to the board and different things like that, but they can take away your permanent residency. So you can imagine this old lady who's been, she immigrated from Italy when she was very young and she just never did that. And I said to her, I was like, I was like, man, you've been here so long. And, and this was shattering. Like she had grandkids, she had her whole family. She didn't live in Italy. She didn't do anything. And the crazy thing was that she could have dual citizenship, right? Is It wouldn't have affected her. So I said to her, I was like, why didn't you do this? Like, it was just, you could have done this so many different times. She's like, well, we just, it's just not something we did. And I'm like, well, now you're, you got to kind of pay for that. So look, at the end of the day, if somebody was in that spot and she was, she'd been here for so long, she had so many attachments that can be dealt with, but it's dealt with, with a lot of anxiety. It's dealt with, with, you know, money and the process and the things that you have to go through. So I always tell people, and I think the best way to put it, one of my Brazilian clients put it the best. And I love, I, I always quote him on it. I explain the process of you're a permanent resident. And, and this is the difference between a citizen and this and that. And I said to him, I, he's like, oh yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm like a permanent guest. And I'm like, bingo. And, you know, and I always, I was always using the thing. It's like being a professor, like you're tenured once you get citizenship, like it's very difficult to take away a citizenship as opposed to a permanent residency. They're both difficult to do, but if you don't meet the requirements, it's a lot easier for them to do. 
the story with the Italian lady, it, it was the two out of five year issue that she was running into, exactly. right? Because she yeah. was out of the country more than three years of a five year period, which made her ineligible. People don't also realize yeah. that things like crimes or even something that people sometimes think is fairly pedestrian, like a DUI could actually get you kicked out of the country if you were not a citizen. I've actually seen that. And I was surprised on it because it was a Mexican national and he was here and he was uh, married to somebody and he had some kids here and stuff. And they actually proceeded to you know, remove him, which I found absolutely ridiculous. And it was, it was, so what had happened was, is he, you know, he just blew over and then he, you know, a lot of times people are unaware. They don't think about the immigration consequence because they have a criminal attorney that will deal with the charge and it gets pleaded out and all of the other stuff. But the way the immigration law is written is that they have to have like, it's almost like guilty till proven innocent in this respect, it's almost reversed. And I don't want to go down too far in that rabbit hole, but you know, the immigration or the criminal attorney did what they were was best for their client, but actually it, it started this whole chain of events. I can tell you it went on for two years and, and he was successful in being able to stay but the tune of the bill was about 25 or 30,000 bucks in legal fees because, and he had to fight like, you know, interviews with the, the border agency. And like, it was, it was bad. I didn't actually handle it. I referred it off to somebody who was specialized in that area, but I, uh, I, you know, I kept a keen eye on it and I was like, huh, that's a, that's a good lesson. So again, the lady there was doing like what a lot of Canadians do and they escape to to the warmer weather of Florida or, or something along those lines or Arizona or whatnot. She was spending a lot of time outside and that kind of caught up and she didn't even think about it because it's something that's off people's radar. So we've talked about the benefits of moving to Canada. We've talked about some of the differences and problems you can have once you're a permanent resident there if you're not careful. Is there anyone who moving to Canada is a bad idea for? I mean, we've kind of talked about it in glowing terms, but are there some people right. who say, look, this is just not for you? There's a number of different situations where I I actually, I'm, I'm a little different in that I will tell people, no, this is not a good idea for you. And for some people, it could be mindset, right? They'll want to come in and they'll want to, you know, they don't want to do the hard work to be able to get established. Now it's different for everybody. And, and again, if you're coming here and you have a portable job and you have this and that, and you have flexibility, fine. If you're coming from like a country where, you know, you're going to have to work on your language skills to be able to get up to par, then you've got some work to do and you, you better be aware of that and you better want to dive into it. There's a lot of opportunity here, but I'm just trying to think about who's listening to this right now. If I, if I'm speaking to one person and they were thinking of coming here, I would say, look, go find out how, what the options are for you and how it's going to be and what type of life you want. When I, when I go through it with people initially, I say, what, what do you imagine your life is going to be like here? And it's a very telling question. And then I'm quiet and I say, what, what do you want? Like, what do you want to do here? And if they paint a picture that's, you know, sounds like realistic, or they'll say, I want to do this or that. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. You can, you can do all that. If, you know, I want to do this, this, and this, and it's like, you know, off in la la land. I'm like, eh, you might struggle with that a little bit, but you know, dreams are dreams, but you know, you got to be able to execute on those dreams. Otherwise it's just a dream. Right. So I, again, I, I really go back to the first stage, which is the planning side. And I think that people can do that. There's a lot of great opportunity. 
I have one guy in Chicago, your, your area neck of the woods. And he contacted me, works for a tech company. And he just said, listen, I'm interested in having Canadian citizenship for my kids and my grandkids. I'm not really interested to move there. I'm just looking at the future. I'm looking at where things are going and I want them to have options. And that's, that's all I want. I was like, okay, you know, he's very realistic. He's very deliberate and he's very methodical in his planning. And it's something that I actually really respect from a lot of people, because one thing that I get, and one thing that I really, really appreciate is people that are really forward thinking and they're looking at stuff now and they say, hmm, you know, this might not actually be where, where opportunity is going to lie for my kids or my grandkids. So maybe I should have something there for them. And I think it's the same, like if you're looking at retirement or educational funds or things like that, you should be looking at future opportunity and also future threat, right? So, and that line of thinking, not most of the population isn't thinking like that. Most of the population is living, you know, in the now or, or maybe a couple of years out. They're not looking 20, 30, 40 years out. There's, there's very few people. And when I get somebody like that, I'll tell you, it, it really interests me in a lot of respects because I'm like, wow, you're on a whole different train of thought, which is really, really remarkable. And tell me, has the pandemic changed anything about the process or the types of people coming into Canada? It's changed the process in that they've really stalled out a lot of the overseas applicants because of the medicals that I referred to. They, they've been bringing people in who can actually travel with the, the lockdowns and whatnot. But I will tell you from a, from a mindset standpoint, and I think, you know, looking at it from a Western standpoint, I will compare somebody who's, who has, say, an American passport to somebody with like a Filipino or an Indian passport. One thing that a Filipino or Indian has, has been subjected to that we haven't is they, they don't really have the freedom to go and travel as much as we do. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, with holding an American or Canadian passport, it's very easy for us to navigate the world, get on a plane. We don't have to go and fill out an application and get a visa and a little sticker on our passport. In most, most instances, we can do that. And I think that Canadians, Americans, and, and Westerners alike, with the airline shutting down and things going, you know, we've actually felt something and been educated on something that a lot of other people don't haven't had. And that's the the restrictions of movements and, and different things like that. And I think that, you know, the pandemic has opened people's eyes a little bit. You know, I, I mentioned in passing there, like health security, right? I think people should be looking at that very seriously now. You know, we've we've seen systems break down logistics and different things like that. And again, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic individual, so I don't really, but I, I think if you're a realist, you look at stuff like that and you say, Hmm, did we ever imagine that the U S and Canadian border would be closed for as long as it's been closed for? Probably not. You know, did we imagine that we couldn't get all of these things and these ships and everything and, and the logistics system would be stalled and we would have like bare shelves? Probably not. But these are realities in other countries and stuff. And I think that it has shifted some of the thinking in terms of that. And again, I go back to future options. You know, what does that look like? You know, and, and in some places it might be doing, the world might be doing well and in other places it might not be. So I don't know. It's really an individual's choice. And I think that it's, I don't want to use the word the smart ones, but the forward thinking ones are people that are generally they're not following the crowd and, and they're thinking outside of the box and they're outside of they're planning for the future. And I think that's actually a commonality of people that are looking at this as opposed to the reactionary people. 
Well, undoubtedly, we have people listening right now who are exactly those type of people thinking out of the box, doing things just a little differently. If this is something that's crossed your mind, are there some good online resources to kind of learn about the initial steps and get an idea if Canada might be the right place for you? So I tell people, go hop online, maybe start reading some of the news. Uh, and I know that's not not really a good thing. You could go look at the tourist websites and things like that, but those are geared you know, to tourists. You got a bunch of happy families running down beaches and stuff and sunsets and everything. It's, it's a tourist thing and it looks nice. It's great for if you want to take a vacation. You know, if, look, I don't actually plug the book, so to speak, but if, you know, people want to reach out to me, I don't mind sending out an e-copy for it or whatever. That's actually a really good resource in that respect. And one of the things that I, I would say is, is that just reach out, start talking to people, start looking at it reading, reading things, looking at stuff on YouTube. Be careful with that though, because it's funny. Some of the stuff we see is, is people are painting really weird pictures sometimes, uh, depending on that. But anyways, yeah, I don't know. Just start reading stuff and, and consuming it. And heck, you know what? You can come here now. So maybe just hop in the car and drive over the border and check it out. Right. I have two sets of people right now. I have somebody from Missouri that's coming up. They will be up here doing an exploratory visit in about a week and a half. Actually, no, quicker than that. They should be up here in about a week. And I have somebody else from Minnesota that's driving up and or flying and they're heading over to Nova Scotia as well because they've they're looking at uh, that area of the country. So, and here's the other thing too. A lot of sometimes people are concerned about uh, the winters. I had a uh, client from Hong Kong. His wife was really concerned about Canadian winter. So they hopped on a plane and came in like January, end of January, February, when it's at its worst. So basically, I think that's a good idea. If you're concerned about the winter, schedule a holiday. Check it out, right? Winters are fun, though. I'm, I'm a big fan of winter after living in the tropics for eight years. Well, Brandon, I'm really happy you came onto the show today because moving to Canada is something that's crossed so many people's minds. It's been a part of so many conversations I've had in the personal finance realm, partially because Canada has lots of benefits that we don't have here in the United States, partially for political reasons, and partially this idea of exploring and living somewhere new. Thank you for adding clarity to the process your book is called Second Passport, Your Guide to Have a Secure Alternative Home for You and Your Family Just in Case. How can people get that? Where can they find it if they want to buy it? It's on Amazon. But again, if people want to read it, I won't send you a physical copy, but I can send you an e-copy. You know, just send me an email. Yeah, they can just send it directly to me. It's brandon at mysecondpassport.ca. And no, it's it doesn't go to some VA or, and no, I won't put you in some sequence of like, you know, doing this, you just, you just reach out to me say, hi, heard about you on this podcast, send me a copy of your book, but there's a writer on that. And it goes back to my curiosity for people, why they want to come here. So one thing I want to know is just say, introduce yourself and uh, tell me why you're interested to come to Canada. Cause that, that actually is one of the most interesting questions that I ask people, because I'm just interested in the reasoning behind this move. I find it fascinating. And I'll tell you, just as one last thought on that, I, people have been immigrating for like years and years, like hundreds and thousands of years. I'm not going to get into the thousands because that would be nomadic peoples and land bridges and things like that. But if you look at, at the people that went to the US or Canada, right, you know, back when these countries were settled, 
there's a certain there's certain characteristics that even exist today. Like, yeah, it's easier today. You hop on a plane, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, showing up in winter and chopping and making chopping trees down to make your cabin so you don't starve in the in the harsh conditions, right? Or getting scurvy on a boat over, right? You know what I mean? But that that mentality of like looking for something better and like that exploratory idea, I think is alive and well. And in my office, I I have posters of immigration, like posters that hung in like England back in like the dawn of time, right? When when they were advertising like fertile farmlands and different things like that. And it's a reminder to me that a lot of people are looking, you know, to the future and, and better things. And I think that I think that, that that mindset and stuff is still alive today, but for different reasons. And it's a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. I like that. If you're looking for a better future, Canada may be the place for you This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Brandon Miller. That's a wrap. Hey, hey, before we get to the after show, I just wanted to remind you that Rob Phelan from episode 258 dropped his book, M is for Money. It is now live. You can go to mismormoneybook.com. Again, that's emmasformoneybook.com or just search for it on Amazon. It's a great book to teach kids about money, especially in the ages of three through seven. It has great illustrations, a wonderful read. I suggest you check it out. Perfect. Awesome. So that was, was a that? lot of fun. Yeah, no, that was great. Did you feel like there's anything that you wanted to discuss that we jumped over? It was, I wanted to make sure we covered everything so we didn't go too in depth about any part of it. But I, I you know, if there's you know, anything thing, you think we missed. One thing I, one thing I, um, one thing I've been doing a lot of uh, mm-hmm. that I, that uh, I didn't touch on and I kind of wish I did because I'm dealing a lot now with parents who are looking at this for their kids. Uh, and I talked about that a little bit from, from the, um, uh, the doctor's uh, point of view uh, the overseas when I was talking about guys in the Middle East, because I get a lot of people. Sorry, I didn't mean to make a lot of doctor comments. Either, <laughs> no, no, I, that's I like, that's that's fine. <laughs> since, I, since I am a physician, it actually fits, I know, so I know, no... right? That's that's why I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm really, but you know, maybe, um, you know, it's a, it's a big topic because I look at it from a financial standpoint where people are actually, we're seeing a growing number of students coming from the United States to study in Canada. And uh, I've, you know, from from a financial standpoint, people are asking the question like, hmm, do I spend all this money on college, university uh, and have all this debt? And then my understanding of the U.S. loans process is is that they'll give a certain amount to the the kids, but then what they'll do is they'll put the parents on the hook for it. And, And then people are sacrificing retirement and different things like that. When in fact, you can actually come to Canada, set yourself up for citizenship, still get a pretty good education, et cetera, et cetera. Like I just did a, uh, I just did a posting on it. I was talking about, it was like, oh, everybody wants to study at Harvard. Have you, have you studied, have you considered Harvard's in different countries? Like if you look at worldwide indexes, University of Toronto, um, you know, which most people would probably not even know exists. It's ranked 18 in, in worldwide. And like, Oh, insulin, you're welcome, University of Toronto, right? Like there's there's people don't think about these things because it's like, you know, they're looking at like these things, these 
these like Ivy League schools or they're looking within their own geographic area. Um, and the other thing that I was saying when I was saying Harvard's and the other thing, because we have a school up here called Sheridan College, for instance. So I'm getting a little chatty here, but no, uh, it's okay. I'll use this as the after show. And so I, I usually put in a little after show and then we'll include this so that people get to hear this perspective. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Do you want to, do you want to maybe just do that? Just keep, just keep talking. Okay. Uh, so the other thing is too, is um, there's a, there's a school up here. It's called Sheridan college and they've got probably one of the best, well, not probably they have like the best animation program worldwide. It's actually called the Harvard of animation and every major studio hires directly out of this program. And they have for years. So, you know, again, a lot of people, what they're looking at is, is they're looking at, you know, student loans and they're looking at like, I can get an education. I can set my kids up for all of this stuff, give them the healthcare, give them all this. And oh, by the way, I'm going to save money doing it. Right. Uh, and oh, the US dollar is a lot stronger. So I can do this. And, and oh, and they're getting an international experience. I think the other thing is too, is that people, when you look at university or you look at uh, the university experience or even the international experience, parents can send their kids away, give them that experience close to home in a safe environment that's not too foreign to them. Like, you know, you pack your kids up and send them to, you know, Tokyo, right? That's a different experience and they're far away. Whereas like here you can drive to them if you're in the continental US. So we've had a lot of really big interest in that. And I, I think it's, um, I think what's interesting to me about that in terms of the trends, uh, we're seeing a lot more of that. And if you look at the student visa rates in Canada, they've gone up in some, in some respects, 200%. Wow. So yeah, you know, from, from a financial perspective, there's, there's different ways to look at things. There's things to look at like financially. And then there's like, what are my goals? Like, oh, my goal is, is to educate my child. Okay. Well, I can do that without, you know, sacrificing finances. And oh, by the way, I can get my uh, US, like my FAFSA loans and they'll cover school in Canada anyways. And I'm getting more bang for my buck and I'm not sacrificing this and I'm giving them future options to this. Like if you start actually putting those things side by side, you know, if, if you do the education on it, then, you know, that's it. This has been so popular that we've actually uh, added a page on our website just for US students uh, for that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole conversation is interesting. So thank you for coming on the show. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. with new episodes every day. This podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.